Data Bytes are presented by Data and Society, a research institute in New York City focused on social, cultural, and ethical issues arising from data-centric technological development. For more information, visit datasociety.net. Whitney Phillips and Ryan M. Milner share their latest book, The Ambivalent Internet, Mischief, Oddity, and Antagonism Online. The book examines the folkloric play of internet memes and how these images empower extremist and progressive political messages through their inherent ambiguity. Whitney Phillips is an assistant professor of literary studies and writing at Mercer University. Ryan M. Milner is assistant professor of communications at the College of Charleston. All right, so we are going to open um, with an adventure in internet storytelling um, called Trump Effect. So this video, just to give a little bit of background, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute, but this video was tweeted to the then presidential candidate, um, Donald J. Trump, in March of last year um, by a Twitter user uh, named at immigrant for Trump. That will be relevant in a moment. Um, and then a week later, Trump retweeted the link caption with the phrase, Guess, make America great again. Um, and immediately that made a lot of people begin scratching their heads and then they didn't stop for the rest of the year um, through today. So uh, without further ado, Trump effect, everybody. A little more ado. And you're welcome in advance. What was that? Is that a dog? It's Hillary. <laughs> We're at war. No one wants to admit it, but humanity is under attack. One very specific man might be all that stands between humanity and the greatest threat of our brief existence. That man is my father. My generation finds itself at a crossroads. If we don't adapt politically and economically, our country will be left behind. We need a leader. We surround them with the brightest, the toughest, the deadliest allies we can find. It's not about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It's about the people of America. Too many mistakes are being made by the politicians. Too many mistakes are being made by people that truly don't know what they're doing. We can't have it anymore. We're going to turn it around. We are going to become rich again. We're going to become great again. We're going to turn it around fast. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. We're not going to take it. I'm working for you folks. We're going to win at every single level. We're going to win so much, you're going to get sick and tired of it. And I'm going to say, I don't care. We're going to keep winning because we're going to make America great again. We're going to make it greater than ever before. It's not over.
there you go. <laughs> um, so as we saw with a lot of people in, in the crowd, there was a lot of head scratching that emerged after this video uh, showed up and then the Republican candidate for president of all people retweeted out to his millions of followers. And that head scratching comes from a few places, we think. Number one, there's the fact that at least at a surface level, it appears to be an earnest endorsement of Trump and his policies. There's a lot of his talking points in it. It covers the nationalism and the populism and the anti-elitism and the drain the swamp and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, had been trademarked in Trump's campaign. But the text of the video itself also has a lot of ambivalence to it, right? So not only do you have the over-the-top hyperbolics, right, the kind of laughingly on-the-nose bits of patriotism and grandiose flags flying eagles. in clouds and fireworks and eagles and all of it, right? Uh, you also have the fact that you may recognize the voice there. That's American actor Martin Sheen. That is him portraying a character in a video game, Mass Effect 2, that's where Trump Effect comes from, uh, called The Elusive Man. The problem here is this. The Elusive Man, according to Manveer here, uh, one of the producers of the game, uh, the way that he put it, The Elusive Man is verifiably the bad guy in the game. And he's the bad guy in the game because his plan is human domination of the galaxy at the expense of all other races of extraterrestrial peoples. So, super critical of the positions espoused by, by Trump in that way. Uh, so you've got that textual level of, was this a sincere appropriation? Was this over-the-top satire? Uh, was it meant to fully endorse Trump? Was it meant to kind of antagonize in this subtle way Trump? What were the motivations behind the video? Then you had the extra quizzical step of the fact that Trump himself retweeted the video with Make America Great Again. So did he do so oblivious to this polysemy, this ambivalence? Did he do so maybe knowing, but also knowing that he would probably dominate the day's news cycle if he did retweet this? Guess what? He did. Uh, was he even the one who tweeted it? Perhaps it was some staffer with uh, their own range of motivations. So as people watch this video, as we watch this video, uh, we were left with more questions than answers. And in that way, the Trump effect is a lot like what a lot of us see on the internet. Well, and to add to that too, one, one clip that goes by pretty quickly in the back, um, people probably couldn't have seen it, but in the shot when he was standing in front of the crowd, there's someone in the crowd who's wearing a, a sweatshirt, a white sweatshirt that has been scrawled with white Sharpie, the words KKK endorses. So then you're like, wait, is that, but if you're a member of the KKK, I guess you'd think that was good. So that could still, it, yeah. what's happening? And so, you know, the thing about Trump effect is that it, it fits in with so much content online that you can't really put your finger on. It's not clear exactly what people are trying to accomplish. Um, it's just not easy to categorize it. You don't know why people are posting things to begin with. Um, and then how people respond to it and then how they choose to retweet it um, or repost it or do whatever it is that they're going to do with it. Um, so Trump effect, in other words, sort of fits right in to the overall internet landscape. So this is something that we became increasingly interested in, a little background on us. Uh, Whitney did her, her doctoral work on internet trolls and trolling subculture and produced a book on that. I did my doctoral work on internet memes and produced a book on that. And so in our years looking at trolls and memes and these kind of things, we came across a lot of stuff that, to say the least, defied easy explanation. Pizza hair, Beyonce, uh, These are for our dogs, personal and, collections. Yeah, right, yeah. 
on artifacts that we have. So it's just like we went yeah. through our, hey, what can we use? Right. So we wanted to write something in a broader sense connecting our two individual works that asked the question, what do you make of a communicative environment, a social, cultural environment, rife with this kind of material that is hard to source, that you can't pin down motivations, that can be used in so many different ways, uh, that has tinges of uh, absurdity or antagonism or mischief, oddity, hence the subtitle of the book. And so we were trying to figure that out. Um, and as we were thinking through these issues, we thought through first and ultimately put aside a couple of frameworks that people often use to describe these kind of practices or behaviors or text. Uh, the first is often this kind of material gets lumped under the umbrella of trolling, right? Was Trump trolling America with Trump effect, right? Was the person who tweeted at Trump trolling Trump? And the word has become in the last five years a catch-all for a lot of behaviors that are pretty, uh, could go either way online, right? So you hear trolling used to talk about pro-social play that's a bit of a prankster or trickster kind of thing. You hear trolling used to talk about outright violent, hateful rhetoric harassment. It collapses a lot and therefore isn't super useful in parsing out some of the some of the underlying mechanisms that cover this range of behaviors that often get called trolling. The other thing you hear a lot of is this kind of material, and you see it right here, described as artifacts from the weird internet. So, you know, weird Twitter or weird wherever, right? And on the surface, yeah, right? It seems <laughs> pretty right. weird. Uh, but there's problems with that framework, too. Number one being that that's a normative term. It's a loaded term. Uh, one person's weird could be another person's Tuesday. Uh, there could be levels of sincerity with stuff like this being produced. It could have communal purposes, even if it does seem aberrant. People producing it knowing that it's weird could know that it's weird, but still get something out of its production and dissemination. And so it's as kind of imprecise as trolling, that everything that's weird has a, a logic to it. And so we wanted to get to something that describe these behaviors that are often called trolling, often called artifacts of the weird internet, with a little more precision. And one of the other things that both of those terms do um, that's problematic and not just not, just not helpful um, is that both of those framings, it's sort of, they obscure the fact that a single artifact can accomplish multiple things at the same time. And those things can then change over time as different audiences engage with whatever text. Um, and so, you know, these kinds of uh, images and other kinds of, the Trump effect itself and all kinds of stuff that gets shared online, uh, much of it can help and hurt, cohere and cut, make people laugh and make people angry simultaneously. Um, and then those, uh, th those implications can then, again, shift over time as different people engage for different reasons. Um, and so we wanted to dive into that. We wanted to lean into that kind, that tension that trolling and weirdness just don't really get into. So this is what we wrote to do that. Um, and so we're using an ambivalence frame to talk about these behaviors. And we're doing so um, with a big flashing neon exclamation point. Um, sign of some kind? Yes, a sign. A big flashing sign that... that we're not using it in the colloquial sort of like meh, meh 
meh sense. I could go either way. That's not how we're using the term. We are using the term um, drawing from the etymology of the term. So the prefix ambi, it's a Latinate. It means both on both sides. Um, and then the root of the word valio, it's the same root as in the word valor. So it means strong strength. So it's strong tension between um, opposing forces. And there are a couple of benefits to approaching this kind of content using this framework. The first is that it takes the tension for granted. You know, that, that it's not that that's something you have to explain away. It's expected that that is what the content is just going to defy any easy categorization. That's already a given. Um, the other thing it does is it really speaks to and allows us to build on um, Mary Douglas. She was a 19th century anthropologist. Um, and she wrote about dirt and taboo and talked a lot about matter out of place. And she argued that one of the fastest and best ways to reconstruct the values of a particular um, the values of a particular cultural system or community is to look at what that cultural community regarded as dirty or bad or weird or taboo, um, or in this case, ambivalent. Um, and so by looking at those things that don't quite fit, you actually have the ability to sort of get to the heart of what is regarded as a norm within that particular cultural co or community, and in the process sort of challenge those norms or complicate those norms or think about where the center is, and that's what ambivalence allows us to do. So with that lens, our goal for the book was to assess just what was new about these seemingly unprecedented uh, examples of online participation, right? Our presumably brave new if oddity and antagonism underneath this premise that the internet has changed all human communication forever, right? Uh, but what we found, though, was that even with new technological affordances to consider uh, that produce their own ethical implications, there was ample precedent for even the most confusing, befuddling, striking online ambivalence. And so today, that's what we want to look at. We want to look at what's brave and new about these modes of vernacular participation, and also the fact that under the sun. And so to dissect that in the book, what we did was we broke down five kind of categories of ambivalent uh, cultural participation that happened online and looked for what was the same and what was different pre and post internet within internet discourses and broader than that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we folkloric expression, we looked at identity play, we looked at constitutive humor, we looked at collective storytelling, and we looked at public debate. And so what we'll do here first today is walk through each of those categories of ambivalent participation and look at how they occur online and look at how much that maps onto things that we have seen in cultural contexts for a really long time. So the first of these categories is folklore. Um, and so we are using a folkloric framework, not just in this chapter, but throughout the book. And the primary reason for doing so is most basically what happens on the internet is folklore. And often when people think about folklore, they think about old stuff, sort of, you know, agrarian, um, you know, traditional dances or foodways. You know, and really all folklore is, um, is the transmission of uh, lived tradition, so lore, across particular um, folk communities, across and between folk communities. That's all folklore is. Um, and because of that, um, what folklore does is it provides a number of tools that were originally um, created to explore ambivalent folkloric expression. Um, 
that folkloric expression is rife with all kinds of ambivalence and oddity and weirdness that's actually somebody's Tuesday. Um, and some of those frameworks are conservative, conservatism and dynamism, so that's the ability to identify the stable cultural elements um, within a tradition and then what changes over time. Um, also appropriate incongruity, so looking at how humor functions within a particular culture. In order for it to work, there has to be, it has to happen within a particular um, community. Certain norms have to be subverted, so that's very helpful when thinking about um, humor. And then also, very relevant to our current moment, um, folklore provides a great um, inroad into talking about false narratives. Um, and so much of these theories are applied to so many um, ambivalent behaviors that uh, American folklorist Barry Tolkien actually argued that up to 80% of all folk folkloric material, in his estimation, would be regarded as obscene to members of the out-group. Not to members of the group, of the in-group, um, for whom it is just Tuesday still, um, but that shows the level of tension between what insiders and outsiders might think about this. Um, and so although these frameworks are conceived for embodied behaviors um, and embodied issues, these kinds of frameworks can be directly applied to the sorts of things that you encounter online. There is that much behavioral and tonal overlap. So in a really fitting example of this, uh, something that seems to be a new iteration of vernacular expression within the last decade or two at the oldest are internet memes, right? Uh, but internet memes tie into a lineage of folk participation that existed a long time before the internet, to the point where media scholar Lamore Schiffman calls internet memes postmodern folklore. And so you can see examples of this in lots of places, one particularly striking comes from a mid-20th century American tradition in uh, many office places called Xerox lore, given the name by a couple folklorists, Alan Dundee's Carl Pachter, who wrote a book in 1975, coincidentally a year before Dawkins even coins the term meme, talking about pre-internet internet memes. The way Xerox lore would work is this. It's, uh, office workers would take memos that their boss sent them, and they would cut them up and rearrange them and cross out words and add in new words and make something really insulting and then photocopy it and send it around the office. Or they would take <laughs> uh, broader jokes uh, about uh, dumb blondes and other sexist motifs, and then they would apply those to specific office workers in order to specifically harangue somebody in the office with those broader sexist motifs. They would draw pictures of pop culture icons, uh, Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, uh, Charlie Brown and Lucy, doing obscene things to each other that we wouldn't put in our book, but Dundee's and Pactor put in their book if you want to go check them out. Uh, <laughs> And so across these examples, anything that you've ever done to PBS's Arthur and shared on Twitter has been done <laughs> by your memetic forebearers in their Xerox lore that they participate. And across these examples, we see folkloric elements, right? The incongruity that makes humor, the obscenity, the conservative mixing with the dynamic, the old mixing with the new, happening over and over and over again, really blurring a line between then and now as far as cultural practices are concerned. Yeah, and so the second... Um uh, sort of building on that, all of these things build on each other, because um, they're all ultimately folklore. Um, the second one is I uh, is identity play. So across era and media, there are a couple of things that really connect um, then and now. And the first is that the physical, politically situated body, um, someone's relationship to power or lack thereof, um, is is of paramount importance. That always factors into the ways that people are able or feel comfortable to play with um, identity. 
all these identity performances are also marked by performative fracture. Um, people, regardless of era, regardless of media, are constantly playing with, so subverting, um, highlighting, downplaying, um, managing the impression of, which is a nicer way of saying lying about, mm -hmm. um, facets of the self. And also, regardless of media, this isn't a question of what's most authentic, what's the most real identity. It's about what mask is most appropriate um, to a given situation. Um, and the other thing that persists across um, era is concerns, deep concerns, about issues of de-individuation. Which might be kind of striking, because when you ask people why is everything so terrible today, one of the first <laughs> things that they point to is anonymity on the internet, right? Uh, that people hide behind screens and they're, they're, they're faceless trolls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, they, are, they are computers themselves. <laughs> uh, but what we see by looking at a historical record of how people have expressed and subverted and played with their identity is a lot of similarities in cases, whether it's online or off, when people are participating with each other and defining who they are in relation to how, the, how who other people are, uh, there is a connection between the mask that you're wearing and the mask of someone else. And so if you take classic cases that seem to speak to a fracture in identity, so uh, Zimbardo's classic 1970s uh, uh, prison study where students were made into prisoners or guards, that's often seen as a case of de-individuation, de fitting into the group norms, those kind of things. But in that case, as Alex Haslam notes in a 2012 read on it, what was most important in that case was not falling into this faceless member of a group, but instead the relational nature of the roles. I'm playing this role to you, and more importantly, both sides, prisoner and guard, were playing that role as students of Zimbardo's. And so there's these connections of relationship that matter to how we play with identity. And that happens online too. It's not just faceless anonymity, but instead it is you connecting to a specific audience for a specific way, thus kind of pointing to a continuity between even the most disembodied online identity play and how we've played roles historically. And so the third um, category is constitutive humor. And just a quick first appreciate our blobfish, first of all. Uh, we'll get to what that means, but just enjoy. Um, so we constitutive, in this case, it refers to world building, the world building power of humor, um, focusing on the relational nature of, of humor, how it brings people together. Um, and across era and media, um, humor always communicates two basic messages. The first is that this is play, that we're playing, we're having a joking exchange. And then the second is that I am one of you. Um, and that doesn't always, sometimes that misfires, but that is often what is communicated. Sometimes that communication simply fails. Um, also, uh, a point of continuity is that humor is fundamental to community foundation. It coheres an in-group around a shared repertoire of cultural texts, and it facilitates a laughing in-group. So it helps build up an us. But in the process, um, it creates an out-group who can't or won't or isn't allowed or is too afraid to laugh. Um, so it, it builds up walls that protect the in-group and make the in-group feel insular and happy and comfortable. But in the process, it keeps other people out. Um, and that you know the Im impact of that can range depending on what kind of humor it is. But those walls have two sides. And there is somebody on one side on the inside having a good time, and then somebody else uh, on the outside not. And so this has been the way humor has operated for a really long time. Uh, even visual humor, uh, which uh, seems to be something that has ramped up with people making political commentary through memes and those kind of things uh, within the last decade or so. But we've got a lot of precedent for even that form of humor that does these very same things. So for instance, here on 
My left is a, I hope you can tell which one it is, a 1798 <laughs> editorial cartoon in which John Bull, this is the personification of Britain, apparently farts in the face of King George of England. Uh, out from the left is uh, the Prime Minister of England screaming, that's treason, Johnny, right? And so the satire here, even in 1798, we can pick up on it today, which is a uh, kind of anti-elite versus elite, a bit of a reduction through dressing down, a bit of, like Whitney was saying, creating an us who then is laughing at them. Political memes today work the same way. So when you compare Ted Cruz, blobfish. rightfully or not rightfully, uh, to a blobfish, then you're doing the same kind of satirical dressing down that was happening hundreds of years ago. When you compare Bernie Sanders' effortless, cool kid, cool, when talking about wolves to Hillary Clinton's apparent robotic, uh, detached anger at wolves, then you are creating barriers between one group and another. So humor functions in a folkloric sense really, really similarly pre-internet, post-internet. And then the fourth is collective storytelling. And so the collective here, also to sort of explain what that qualifier is, um, it's collective because the continued spread of a particular story or narrative element has as much to do with the audience as it does with the person telling. Um, that if an audience doesn't enjoy the story, doesn't choose to retell the story or recombine it or remix it in one way or another, um, if that doesn't happen, the story doesn't continue. So stories are collective in a way that typically, you know, that's not part of how stories are described. Usually it's the telling and then a passive audience, but the audience is, is absolutely part of that process. Um, and so across era and media, um, all stories are densely referential, um, recombining resonant narrative elements. And so as a result, these seemingly singular texts and meanings and authors are always multiplicitous and they're always heteroglossic. Um, and there, it, it, tissue of quotations doesn't even cover it. It's more like tangle of quotations. This is not, however, and this is a tricky point, this is, it's not a post-structuralist free-for-all. It doesn't mean you can't say that things mean things still, just because you have all this heteroglossia. All of these stories, all these narrative elements are drawing from a shared cultural reservoir um, that contains the most persistent narrative uh, motifs and, and elements with conservative cultural meaning and conservative in the sense that we described earlier of persistent across time. So regardless of what an individual thinks about a, a given trope, it's conservative in that way that it's continuing to be part of this shared tradition. Um, and the big flashing caveat here is that it does not matter to what extent that individual agrees with the motif, thinks it's good, thinks it's bad. They could be sharing it to critique it. They could be sharing it to um, subvert it. Regardless of why they do it, every time those elements are told, retold, remixed, those seeds continue to be cast back up into the air and continue to be part of the persistent um, conservative tradition of storytelling. So we saw this in an especially collective form of storytelling that popped up in the American context in the mid-20th century. 60s, 70s, 80s particular were urban legends, right? So stories you might have heard as kids about a couple out and a murderer hook for a hand, right? <laughs> or you pick up a hitchhiker and then she vanishes when you drop her off, right? Or you go to another country and your kidney gets stolen, right? right, right. Uh, so these... These stories were collective. They were passed around orally. They went across multiple media. People would take a common trope and then they would apply it to their specific context, just like Xerox lore, just like memes. Uh, and in that way, a social consensus 
came about even in the midst of individual storytelling. And as much variation as there might have been in different motifs and tropes, you still had some consistent kind of themes. So a lot of urban legends, for instance, have pretty regressive themes when it comes to racial representations, when it comes to uh, gender norms and that kind of thing. And so those collective processes and all the potential and all the drawbacks uh, that they engender show up in online storytelling. So a classic parallel uh, between urban legends comes from creepypasta, if you're familiar. Right? So scary <laughs> stories that people share online, and they edit them collectively in different forums and spaces and group threads and that kind of thing. Uh, and you have the same variation between the collective and the individual with creepypasta. When someone takes a scary story and then they tell it in a forum in this way, they're pulling from a reservoir of other users, of other cultural narratives, cultural motifs, uh, that carry the same individual creativity, but perhaps some of the same problematic messages. So a classic example, um, Slenderman right here. Now, Slenderman, this is one of the photos, supposedly, of the original Slenderman. He's a big deal, HBO documentary and everything. He's right there. Uh, he emerges <laughs> from a 2009 forum on the, uh, on the site Something Awful. Uh, make paranormal pictures was the charge of the forum. And so people started making pictures, inserting this tall, tentacled individual. And within a few days, there were pages and pages and pages of uh, photoshops and text-based stories. And a collective canon was born that is then since spread out in a lot of ways with a lot of different degrees of seriousness. Some people take it the horror way, some people take it the comedy way. There's Slenderman erotica and romanticization. Believe me, it's out there, you can look it up. Uh, and in these tales, there's the same mix of ambivalent tropes. So for instance, a lot of romantic or erotic Slenderman stories also forward a lot of problematic ideas that are tied to things like intimate partner violence and some problematic motifs show up in that way. The fifth... Uh... <sighs> We can just let that sink in. Yeah, it's good. Um, so the fifth, we, we have stories to tell about this particular chapter. We would love to tell you um, after over a drink. Um, but we sort of wrote this as this was sort of unfolding, and it was an adventure for all. Um, but so the, what we focused on in public debate is the ways that, you know, again, similar things that are happening now have happened in previous times, despite how unwieldy everything seems to be. And the most vexing point of continuity between now and then is that public debate can both silence and empower voice. Um, as we're seeing unfold now, democracy cuts both ways and raises all kinds of questions, particularly what do you do when free speech for some means silencing for others? Um, and public debate is now, and has always been, also bedeviled by two overlapping evil twins, sets of evil twins. The first is conflict and unity. So it's this idea that bringing people together can also push them apart, that what's cozy for us can be devastating, can be life-threatening to, to them. Um, and also affect and rationality, this idea that emotion and rational argument are intimately intertwined. And those things have been true as, as, as long as there has been politics that people have written about down in books or wherever. So we see both these evil twins play out with the discourse online and off of, for instance, President Trump, right? Who uh, uh, courts conflict kind of consistently. Uh, it's conflict that comes from denigrating whole groups of people, from making others. But that conflict also has a unitary function, the sense that people are in Trump's base who agree with those sentiments, find a sense of identity, tribal identity, 
in the conflict that he courts, which is not a new way to do politics in America or in any place. Trump also, we think, to an unhealthy degree, if we can editorialize, uh, 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 demonstrates uh, the effective register of mediated communication or otherwise. So this 2011 tweet, right? Just a little over the top. You've got... <laughs> Examples, though, in contemporary political discourse of positive use of affect. So one example we highlight in the book, for instance, is uh, Kazir Khan's speech at the 2016 Democratic National Convention in response to Trump's proposed ban on people of uh, the Muslim faith, faith entering the United States. Khan, a Muslim, spoke of his deceased son who died fighting for the country and used it as an opportunity, an effective, impassioned opportunity to counter Trump's delegitimizing claims about the faith and the role of people of Muslim faith in the American story. So you have these tensions playing out now, but you've had these tensions playing out a long time. So good example here, we've got Trump's feet on top and on bottom, uh, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner in 1856 calling South Carolina Senator Andrew Butler a noisome squat and nameless animal. Not a proper model for an American senator that could have been tweeted this morning, right? Uh, <laughs> This was, of course, embroiled in all kinds of conflict. This was made during a pro-abolitionist speech on the Senate floor. What happened after that was Representative Preston Brooks from South Carolina, a distant cousin of Andrew Butler, didn't appreciate the slight, and so Brooks and some friends went to the Senate floor, and they beat Sumner nearly to death with a cane. Uh, Brooks resigned facing censure. His constituents wouldn't hear of it. He was immediately voted back in office. They sent him in the mail uh, new canes to use, inscribed with things like, use knockdown arguments and hit him again, right? <laughs> so again, what may seem unprecedented, and believe us, so much <laughs> seems so unprecedented right now, we have a lot of historical precedent for, which I think is important to remember as you're looking at this vernacular expression line. And the consistent takeaway from all of these cases is that the boundaries that we tend to take for granted, so then and now, online and offline, constitutive and destructive, collective and individual, silence and voice, are actually not so bounded after all, um, underscoring the deep ambivalence of folkloric behavior across era and media. But, but this is the good stuff. Uh, was good too. But uh, <laughs> adding to the ambivalence of this continuity is the other side of the coin. As much as ambivalent vernacular online uh, is precedent in all these ways, the technological and social affordances of the web send these ambivalences into hyperdrive. Uh, so while we do need to be mindful of continuities between era, between degree of mediation, we also need to keep an eye out for what's new in this brave new world. And so a few of um, the affordances that we've identified as, as being impactive in, in folkloric uh, creation and transmission, first is modify or modularity, the ability to sort of take and something from something else and not destroy the original things, you can keep playing with it. Um, modifiability, you can alter things in all kinds of exciting ways. Um, archivability, um, so you can uh, store something for later and then search for it using some form of, of tagging, search indexing. Um, and then accessibility, you or someone else down the road can then find these artifacts you've either found originally or, or created yourself and then spin them off into any, any number of additional um, directions. And, and that brings all of these examples are evidence of that. You're taking pieces, placing them on something else, modifying that new thing. You're able to search using Beyonce and pizza hair. All of these great things. And then um, it's accessible to anybody who happens to want Beyonce gif pizza hair. Yeah, store them on your hard drive and horrify 
about your friends. <laughs> and so these practices that are age old get this new shot in the arm the new affordances of new technologies. And so we can do folklore, we can do everyday vernacular expression in these whole new ways, thanks to these technological affordances. But on top of those technological affordances, there are also kind of specific behavioral affordances that uh, are pretty unique to people interacting in online spaces that you have to consider when thinking through this ambivalence. The first is a pretty obvious one that a lot of people go right to. Anonymity, pseudonymity, or real names at the other end of the, perspect of the spectrum does weigh into conversations of what people disclose, how they treat each other. There are dystopian reads on that that we're all familiar with. There's more utopian reads uh, that speak to how people can be more authentic and more real in online spaces. So you have this tension that comes from the degree to which uh, people know each other. And so that's why anonymity and pseudonymity are a decent place to start, but there are a little bit more nuances, a little bit of more nuance you can think through when thinking through the way that people interact with each other online. One important thing to think about is an idea that Joseph Walther walked through in the 90s called the communication imperative. Basically making the argument that when you participate online, if you don't have an embodied context to fall back on, you're not friends IRL, so to speak, uh, then your identity, yourself, is made through communication. The only way anyone can know who you are, the only way you can know who other people are, is through what is communicated explicitly. Through how profiles are built, or display pics that are pictured, or specific tweets, or videos uploaded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so this behavioral affordance means that all we have to go on in public conversations online are what other people give us. You also have the notion of reduced social risk, uh, another 90s internet communication theory, Pavel Curtis. Uh, the idea that when you are participating with someone across distance, across media, then the stakes are a lot of times a little lower than if you're right there in, in the same room as someone else. And so this can cut in positive ways, in positive disclosure or being free to talk about yourself in a way that you wouldn't in an embodying context. It can also cut in negative ways, right? If you feel more comfortable sending death threats or harassment or uh, pranks or jokes or anything in the spectrum in between. You also have, familiar to a few people in this room, the notion of context collapse. And so Alice and Dana have worked on this idea. The idea that thanks to things like modularity, modifiability, you can move communication from one context to another really easily. It's hard to know if when you post something or when you take a picture of yourself or when somebody else takes a picture of you, for instance, if it'll stay with the original intended audience or if it will be spun out into new audiences and new ways. And so you see this today when a tweet from five years ago all of a sudden comes back up uh, or when an image that was meant to be on a private server becomes public and shared. And so these behavioral dimensions of online participation mixed with those technological affordances mean that a lot of the ethical questions that have long haunted vernacular expression, folk expression, are even more significant and take on new twinges of meaning in online spaces. And so we have three that we've identified and we explore throughout the book um, of these new sort of ethical complications that are um, fraught and loaded and, and not necessarily resulting in, in problematic behavior, not necessarily resulting in harm, but maybe. And that maybe is, is, is a big maybe with a capital M. Um, and the first is amplification. So that's the spread of, of content or ideas um, from person to person. And that can obviously happen um, in embodied spaces. But in embodied, truly embodied spaces, purely embodied spaces, you're sort of uh, a message, its spread is restricted by what group of 
people you, what, what circles you travel in. And, and word of mouth can get things out fairly quickly, but not nearly as quickly as how quickly something can go viral, as they say, um, instantaneously with a single click of a button. Um, and, and so that sends the existing ambivalence of amplification um, into hyperdrive. And in cases of clear, willful, um, straightforward harassment, this is obviously a problem. So if you're amplifying hateful content or if you're contributing to a hate and harassment campaign, obviously that's not good. But amplification can be problematic even when the person sharing isn't doing so out of malice. They may be doing so in order to push back against some form of harassment. They may be doing so to satirize someone that they disagree with. They could be doing so for any number of reasons. What that those motivations, while they're interesting to researchers, ultimately don't matter in that the seeds, not that they don't matter, but the seeds get cast either way. The seeds don't care why they're cast. The seeds get cast and then they're part of that shared tradition. And so for whatever reason someone engages with content online, um, it lives on. And that can go, you know, that can go in either direction, often simultaneously, depending on the content and who sees it and what happens as a result. And so uh, an example here, right? Uh, so this has become a more common practice. Whenever President Trump tweets, you'll inevitably get a deluge of people not only replying to the tweet, but also captioning it or quoting it and then offering a rebuttal oftentimes. Uh, this specific example is Matthew Iglesias, a journalist at Vox, who in a tweet himself took a screenshot of a Trump-Pence fundraising email and then retweeted it with a snarky caption. And so what happens there is the person making the snarky joke gets the last word, sure, but if you're scrolling through that tweet on your timeline, the Trump-Pence logo is front and center, Trump's message is front and center right there. So your counter meme, so to speak, your counter to Trump's point is being carried right alongside Trump's point himself. And so in this way, even if you're doing something to critique, you have the ethical obligation to think about what does my spread, what does my sharing of this specific message do? Uh, whose water am I carrying? And so this can come from intentional decisions. This can also come from more passive participation. So if you like something, for instance, that somebody else has tweeted, and then somebody that you both follow jumps on Twitter, you're going to be able to see that just the way algorithmically Twitter works. And so even these small acts of amplification, clicking that heart, uh, can carry a message in a lot of ways that we can't control. And so this, this leads to ambivalence. And another point that's related to this, they're all related, is fetishization. And we're using fetish in the Marxist sense, so the process by which capitalism um, sort of renders consumer goods magic so that you're not really seeing the environmental impact, you're not seeing the labor conditions, you're not seeing systems of access and privilege, you're just seeing the thing that you bought at Target for $12. So we're sort of using it in that way. Um, similarly, decontextualization afforded by digital tools and environments, um, which is a feature of online participation, not a bug. That's what allows people to do all of the fun and interesting and weird things um, that makes the internet so great sometimes. Um, it often obscures context in favor of the um, modular, modifiable text, which in turn allows participants to easily sidestep the full political, historical, or emotional um, circumstance and to flatten nuance into mimetic granularity. I mean, yeah, that can happen offline. That happens with gossip. Um, people are standing in judgment of a specific aspect of someone's life or a choice that someone's made, not the totality of their life. So it can still happen offline. 
But similar to, similarly to amplification, online spaces and tools amplify um, the stakes of fetishization exponentially. Um, all those technological affordances that allow you to do amazing things like create Dana Scully sparkle hair gifts um, also make it easier to separate people from their offline circumstances, um, to mistake a part of the story for the whole of the story, um, or to never even see that whole, and as a result, never understand or be forced to confront the embodied repercussions of their online behaviors, or to put it another way, to never even know whose toes you might be stepping on. So, for instance, hey, this one was fun, right? <laughs> uh, or at least we thought so. So the story behind this image is a few days ago, the Washington Post reported that Sean Spicer, the press secretary, uh, instead of talking to the press, was hiding in the bushes, or perhaps among or amidst or betwixt <laughs> the bushes. I'm not sure. Uh, and so that became a joke, the idea of Sean Spicer hiding in the bushes. Uh, and so as part of that joke, what a few people started doing is printing out uh, Sean Spicer, tops of Sean Spicer's head, and then planting them in bushes around different towns. Uh, and so here we have an example of a literal kind of flattening of a real person to a specific moment, fetishizing that one moment in the name of humor. Now you might say, yeah, that's defensible. He's a public figure, a problematic piece of discourse, that administration, blah, 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 right? And that's fine. But there are other more banal examples of fetishization that uh, I think a lot of us are maybe more culpable of, right? So if there is a gif of somebody running and trying to do a gymnastic sleep and then falling right in their face. And you're like, this describes my day, ha! And then you tweet it out, and other people see it. There was a real person who really fell on their face, and that might have been two months ago, that might have been 20 years ago. They might still be embarrassed by that moment. We're sharing it, right? Or if you were a 14-year-old and you took a picture or somebody else took a picture of you at the wrong time and then five years later somebody else uploads it to Reddit and then all of a sudden it's captioned everywhere, there's a lot of people who have become internet famous through fetishization. So there's ethical stakes to that. And there are ethical stakes at the level of the people posting the original image, creating the original GIF. But every time any one of us in this room plays with that meme or takes that joke to a new context, we're spreading that fetishization. And so another cause to kind of stop and pause and think about who's the real person in this image I'm trying to share? Who's the real person behind this story, behind this meme, behind this joke? And it's not just the individual people, too. I mean, so Sean Spicer is obviously the subject of this situation. Um, but it's not just, you know, does this, how could this impact Sean Spicer? But it also sort of obscures, why was Sean Spicer hiding in the bushes? Yeah. But then it becomes this just visual punchline of like, that's funny, but, but it, it obscures, it flattens, it doesn't force a person to engage with what precipitated this. And then it suddenly becomes not so funny anymore when you think about that. But when you're just looking at an image of Sean Spicer in the bushes, then it's easy to just be like, that's clever. Um, and so, you know, so that, both of those things, both fetishization and amplification, it contributes to probably the um, framework that's most pervasive throughout the book, and that is Poe's Law. So Poe's Law was created, um, it can be traced back to uh, a forum, a creationist forum in the mid-2000s. A poster named Poe commented that it was often impossible to tell the difference between a sincere young earth creationist and a parody of a young earth creationist, which was then sort of adopted as a broader internet axiom um, to make the point that it's you often can't tell if something is sincere or satirical online just by looking at it. Um, and both amplification and fetishization feed into Poe's law because when something becomes totally unmoored from its original source, you don't know what the original meaning was intended to be. You don't know what groups may have been impacted by it. The further it gets amplified, the harder it is to know what something 
is doing or should be doing or why you should be concerned about it. Um, and then also fetishization, same thing. It removes a content, uh, removes content or an idea or a joke or whatever from its original context. And so again, you can't really determine what something is meant to mean and what the ethical stakes of amplifying it might be. So you're sort of in the dark in terms of what might the impact of all of it be if I click this heart or if I retweet or whatever. So uh, kind of uh, the epicenter of Poe's Law for the last uh, few months in American public discourse has been Pepe the Frog, if you're familiar, right? So Pepe the Frog was a meme originated on 4chan, picked up by Tumblr about a half decade ago. It was pretty banal. It was a way that people expressed kind of lots of different everyday feelings. What happened was around the time of the American election, Pepe the Frog and what appears to be, and you can pretty confidently say, was a specific kind of smear campaign, uh, to put it that way, uh, was co-opted as a symbol of the alt-right, uh, read white nationalists, uh, kind of wing of the American uh, right-wing political spectrum. And so this was, by all indications, kind of done as sort of a, a joke, a media manipulation tactic. If we take this kind of banal image and we start using it in these really regressive ways, and then we kind of get people scared of it and talking about it in that way, then all of a sudden it really becomes that. And that's exactly what happened with Pepe the Frog, to the point where after a few high-ranking right-wing uh, personas, one of Donald Trump's sons, tweeted out Pepe images tied to uh, right-wing supremacy, the ADL declared these uses of Pepe the Frog as a hate symbol. Hillary Clinton famously backed that up in a speech. And the people behind the original campaign were absolutely delighted because their joke had become deadly serious. And along the way, you had people jumping on, sharing it as a sincere symbol of white nationalism and white supremacy. And so the entire story of Pepe, from those beginnings to this co-opting to his death, his creator, the original creator of the original Pepe the Frog, killed him in the comic uh, where he came from. So RIP Pepe. Uh, in this entire arc, you've got this ambivalent blend of sincerity and irony uh, to the point where it's hard to trace motive, right? It's hard to know why specific people are sharing this specific image, like any image, like any piece of discourse, like any perspective, in a specific way. And so with that inability to parse motive, all you're left with is the discourse itself. All you're left with is the communication itself. And that makes it really hard to know how to behave ethically, know how to ethically think through other people's perspective. That's, I think, the highest point of ambivalence in the book, where this brave new world is the newest, is with this unmooring of intent from communication that you see through Poe's Law, and you see in a lot of public conversation. Fine. So to bring it all back to our friend... For instance. Yeah. For instance. So all of these new ambivalences were operating in Trump effect, right? You had amplification occurring with the media attention that the video received after Trump retweeted it. Uh, you've got the fetishization that occurs in how specific people in the video are portrayed and dressed. You've got pose law happening with the question of looking at it and going, what was that? <laughs> so lots wholly new and lots really confusing, but in the Trump Effect video, you also had a lot of continuity. This was a piece of folkloric expression uh, that pulled from these different motifs to tell a new story. It was 
identity play in who it cast as an us and who it cast as a them. It used humor of a vague sort to make its constitutive <laughs> arguments. It pulled multiple strands together into a singular story in service of public debate. So as befuddling as Trump effect was and is, it also has a lot of precedent. So all these twists and turns um, culminate in the final point of ambivalence which is that on one hand, we can't know anything about Trump effect. On the other hand, we can learn a great deal from Trump effect, not by focusing on the obvious entry point, so the text itself or its creator or what that creator hoped to accomplish by posting, but how the video complicates the boundaries between then and now, online and offline, um, constitutive and destructive, collective and individual, silence and voice. Um, so what Trump effect does, if you approach it just so, is show that none of these jumbled binaries are as obvious or as clear or even as helpful as you might assume or want them to be. A jumble that is appropriately enough, both the ultimate source of and ultimate hindrance to meaningful cultural insight, ambivalence all the way down. There you go. <laughs>